Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. You're listening to the Mind Over Murder podcast. My name is Bill Thomas. I'm a writer, consulting producer, and now podcaster. I am now trying to use my experience as the brother of a murder victim to help other victims of violent crime. I'm working on a book on the unsolved Colonial Parkway murders, and I'm the co-administrator of the Colonial Parkway Murders Facebook group, together with Kristen Dilley. My name is Kristen Dilley. I'm a writer, a researcher, a teacher, and a victim's advocate, as well as the social media manager and co-administrator for the Colonial Parkway Murders Facebook page with my partner in crime, Bill Thomas. Welcome to Mind Over Murder. I'm Kristen Dilley. And I'm Bill Thomas. And this week we have part two of our episode with Colleen Fitzpatrick, a genetic genealogist who was our guest last week. We had a fascinating and interesting conversation with her, and we are very much looking forward to continuing that conversation and sharing it with you all today. And in other true crime news... C.C. Moore, who is another prominent forensic genealogist, is going to be appearing on a new television series. The show is called The Genetic Detective and tells the story about how she and her team at Parabon have also broken a number of cold cases. The show makes its debut next Monday, May 26th at 10 p.m. on ABC, and I think it's on for six weeks. It's a limited series. It should be very interesting the genetic detective. So look for it Mondays at 10 o'clock on ABC. Now we had a couple of listeners who had suggested that we do a true crime news wrap up or true crime news update, which we think is a great idea. So whenever possible, we're going to offer some insight into the latest news from the true crime scape. Today, we do want to very quickly make a mention of the fact that Dennis Lee Bowman, you may recall, was indicted for the 1980 murder of Kathleen Doyle Kennedy in Virginia Beach, Virginia, has now been indicted on a different crime. Dennis Lee Bowman has now been charged in the 1989 murder of his 14-year-old adopted daughter. Her birth name was Alexis Badger, and after she was adopted by Dennis Lee Bowman and his wife, Brenda, her name was changed to Andrea Bowman. This is as a, an infant. Sadly, he murdered her and hid her body under concrete in the basement of his home. As part of the exploration of the Kathleen Doyle murder, he provided information about the whereabouts of his missing daughter. Alexis' birth mother, Kathy Turkanian, has been searching for her daughter for years and has been a tremendous advocate, and we're pleased to announce that Kathy Turkanian will be a guest on upcoming episodes of Mind Over Murder in a few weeks. Speaking of upcoming episodes, we are very, very much looking forward to sharing a three-part interview with you from David Rambo, a writer and producer on television's hit series, CSI. So thanks again for listening to Mind Over Murder, and we'll look forward to seeing you next time. Welcome to Mind Over Murder. I'm Kristen Dilley. That makes me Bill Thomas. We are back this week with part two of our episode with Colleen Fitzpatrick, who's going to talk to us about forensic genealogy. Colleen, welcome back to Mind Over Murder. Glad to be here. 
we were talking about the Phoenix Canal Killer case last time mm-hmm. and yeah. uh, your very successful identification <clears throat> of Brian Patrick Miller as mm-hmm. the suspect in the Canal Killer case. My question that I wanted to ask is when you receive information about a crime such as as this one, do you get the whole entire file or do you just get the DNA profile? I'm just very interested in whether you knew the full scope of these crimes and if you, you know, had an idea who the victims were, does that affect in any way how you approach the case? Actually, it depends on the agency. I tend to like to have a little bit background on the case. It really depends on the work we're doing. If it's a wide DNA case, having the background on the case is probably not as important. Wide DNA only looking for the last name in that case. I do produce maybe a nationality, perhaps an ethnicity, like African-American, Native American, Caucasian. I can come up with that. But, you know, what I produce is maybe even out of context. I can just do it without knowing anything except that string of numbers called a YSTR profile. If it's an autosomal test like modern we're doing now, you really have to have more of a context because you do know, you know, who the matches are. You do know more about the geography of relatives. You may not know who did the crime, but from the matches, you can deduce probably where the guy was born. Maybe if all the matches are from Louisiana, you're looking for background, somebody with a background from Louisiana. Is it helpful to have those things? In other words, is it helpful for them to say, okay, we're looking for a suspect from Louisiana, let's say, who may have family ties to New Orleans, let's say? They won't tell us that because in most cases they don't know. These are cold cases. Right. And a lot of times people will say, you know, this was a murder of an elderly woman, let's say. And these kind of murders are typically caused or done by, you know, younger men who live not too far away. You know, they drive certain kinds of cars. Their educational level is, you know, there's some kind of profiling on the psychology and the kind of person that would do that crime. But typically, they would not know the ethnic bat, or they may know if it's a Caucasian or something because of an eyewitness or something, but they don't know the guy may be from Louisiana or something. Police always base you know, their investigation on physical evidence. And if you walk up to somebody, if you looked at me, you would, I, and I left something at a crime scene, you wouldn't be able to see from the physical evidence I was from Louisiana. So we're introducing another layer on top of the physical evidence, more deeper investigative look at who may have done this crime. So were you given information about the victims in this case, in the canal killer case? Well, no, whatever I read, of course, I I read about Angela and Melanie. I read about them, but, you know, I was not given any additional information because I didn't need it. You know, more like here's some DNA from a crime scene, you know, and this is what happened. This is the crime. But, you know, the police, there's no reason to share that information with me. I don't need it. Is there any sense that having additional information like that would interfere with your ability to be strictly driven by by science Uh and the DNA matching and that kind of thing? Well, I'm just I um it wouldn't it, it would be neutral if i had it it would be good to have if it if i didn't have it it wouldn't make any difference to me it's interesting to me because it's something i'm working on and i like to know as much as i can but in terms of the really method of solving it using y dna i really don't need to know that so if he does go to trial, I know he's scheduled for trial in June, and clearly we don't really know what's going to happen considering the COVID-19, but if he does go to trial in June 2020, will you be called to testify? Have you been you know, given that information? I have not officially. I did give what's called an interview in Arizona, and my understanding that's like a deposition. Mm-hmm. It's a form of, and I went out there to kind of talk to the defense I asked the prosecution attorney, some of them to be present, and the defense asked me some questions, and I answered them. It's pretty cut and dry. I've been told I most likely will not be called to testify, but if I am, I absolutely have no problems. What I did was cut and dry. It was a lead that I produced 
like all genetic genealogy stories, it's a lead that I provided to the police department and they ran from there. So I think most of the trial will be concentrated on and they ran from there rather than all the leads that they had been developing through the years, including mine. Agreed. And important for our listeners to understand that when someone like Dr. Fitzpatrick generates this lead, that that's all then confirmed. In other words, they take a look at, in this case, suspects with the name of Miller, narrowed it down to the person they thought was the most likely. And it's been reported in the media. And in many other cases, they then went out and surreptitiously collected Mr. Miller's DNA. And typically, they'll do this with something that the suspect has thrown away, and that's already been through the court system. It is legal for law enforcement to watch you, and then when you throw away a coffee cup, a cigarette butt, a half-eaten slice of pizza, Mm -hmm. as, as they did in the Grim Sleeper case in Los Angeles, which then presents a fresh DNA sample, and they match that DNA sample back to the suspect's DNA, thus confirming your scientific tip, which said you should be looking for an individual with the name of Miller, that work on the back end then confirms your reference to a potential suspect named Miller. Well, it's a little bit more than that. You, you miss one step. Oh, thank is, you. Tell us. You know, I, in any case, you know, no matter how this is done, you know, I provide, you know, a name Miller. Okay, they think they know whoever it is. But there's two steps at that at this point. The police can go out and collect discarded DNA. That is legal. Right. So... You know, they collect a cigarette, buy trash, whatever. And they take the DNA from that sample and they match it or they against the crime scene evidence. And it's let's say it's a match. If it's a, not a match, the guy's ruled out. If it is a match, they have another step that gives them probable cause to go and make an arrest because that man's DNA matched the DNA at the crime scene. And that is a fact. It matched that gives them probable cause. They will arrest him. They will bring him into the, and they will take another DNA sample right there in the station. They usually videotape it. Right. They have a chain of custody. And that is the sample, the the evidentiary sample that is used in court. And that's the step I overlooked because that actually confirms 100% then that this individual, this potential suspect's DNA does match suspect DNA left at the Correct. crime scene. And there's even one more step after that, and that is when it goes to trial, it is a fact that his DNA matched the crime scene. That is a fact. The next step is to say, what is the chance, the random chance that somebody out there would match, and it's also match, like it's called random man not excluded or the likelihood ratio. What is the likelihood that his DNA matches over everyone else out there that could potentially be in that story there? So you have statistics. So yes, he did match, but can you rule out the fact that it could have been some other guy from another neighborhood that committed the crime? That's where you come up with the statistics that his DNA is one in a trillion times more likely to match the DNA at the crime scene than anyone else in the world. Right. Oh, You have still the possibility his DNA matched, but it's a coincidence. You have to rule that out. That's the last step. And that's where we hear that numerical mm-hmm. testimony word the right. so expert there's really says. Four, there's four steps in this. They give me a Y DNA, and I come up with the name Miller. All right, fine. They find Brian Patrick Miller's a suspect on their list. All right, step one. Step two, they collect the DNA, and they find his DNA matches the crime scene DNA. Step three is they arrest. That gives them probable cause. Step three, they arrest him, and in the police station, they take his DNA again, and they videotape it. They chain of custody everything, and they see again that it matches the crime scene data. That is not debate. Step four is to go to court and to determine what's the chance that his DNA is the match over anyone, a random guy in the population. And that's where you get those big numbers you hear sometimes. So there's four steps to this. Now, uh, we try to learn something in every podcast, and I learned something just now. 
mm-hmm. which is I have a new expression, which is also going to be the name of my new rock and roll band, Random Man Not Excluded. Right. That is a term in forensic DNA analysis. And we're going to have T-shirts that say Random Man. Yeah. What do you think? We'll give you full credit, Colleen. Sounds good to me. Sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> what about random woman? You know, random well, woman not excluded. Random Absolutely. Person. Random person not excluded. Yeah. yeah. Random no, man. That's good. Yeah. Random person doesn't have. I. I'm all about random you know, man. Random man. Random fine. man. Especially since so many suspects are men and and not women. It seems. Yeah. I think we've got our first piece of merchandise. <laughs> yeah. Random oh, man. Okay. That'd be great. You made a really interesting reference in last week's episode. You talked about when you were first pursuing forensic genealogy and starting to show results that you were a bit tentative. You and Andy, your partner, were a bit tentative about putting it out there too much because you'd gotten so much pushback from genealogists. What did you mean? I'd say pushback was a kind word, a kind way of putting it. And when I did the Sarah Yarbrough case, you know, I'm just minding my own business. I think this is interesting to try. That was the murder of a a young woman, a a high school student in Federal Way, Washington. And I think it was 91. I have to check. I offered, I went to the Seattle Police Department. I said, I have this Y-DNA genetic genealogy idea. And the two detectives, I would say, were less than receptive. They almost fell asleep. They argued with me. They wouldn't give me their business card, whatever. Okay, so the the DNA lady, though, understood what I was talking about. So they wound up sending me the Y profile, and I wound up matching it through the method I have described with the name Fuller. And in investigating where that name came from, the Y DNA profile matched these genealogists that traced their ancestry to Robert Fuller in Massachusetts in 1630. So, you know, this gives a historical context for this guy. We know his name is Fuller. We know he's connected to, well, let's say possible name Fuller. I have to say that probably connected to Robert Fuller. He was not on the Mayflower, but he was related to the Mayflower people. To add to the story, the girl, the victim, had a friend in classmate named Elizabeth Fuller. And Elizabeth Fuller didn't have a brother. She had four sisters. So, of course, their father, Bill Fuller, you know, was a person of interest. And he was in the area at the time of the murder. He was jogging somewhere. Bill Fuller went in and he was excluded. His DNA did not match the killer's DNA. He was excluded from the investigation, but his Y DNA matched the killer. And therefore, he's also a descendant of Robert Fuller from Massachusetts in the 1630s. So, so same family, although Bill Fuller, the father of the classmate, is clearly not the perpetrator. Correct. The CODIS markers didn't match. No. But he is rela- right. he's related to the killer. Yes, but through Y DNA not through CODIS. CODIS is only good for a one-to-one or a, in some states familial matching, one to almost one, a fuzzy one. Y-DNA is non-generational. You know, a Y-DNA, anybody along the paternal lines, DNA will match each other. Like your dad has the Y-DNA, your great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather has the same Y-DNA along the male line. Right. It just carries on. So Bill Fuller is a, we call it patrilineal or male, male line relative. He's some kind of cousin, but considering the connection to Robert Fuller, he could be a 15th cousin or a third cousin or a 10th cousin. We don't know because DNA can't tell you that. Right. And so even though these people could be distantly related to Fuller from the Mayflower from hundreds of years before, mm-hmm. they might not even know they're from. Yeah, right. That family. He didn't. Right. I just did his genealogy. Right. Because the name Fuller and he was, you know, in that same family. OK, so and I knew that he didn't he didn't have any sons that we knew about. He didn't. He had one brother. I think. No, he, he was an only child. His father had one brother who never married. So the relationship between the killer and Mr. Fuller was, you know, not immediate. Let's put it that way. 
when that happened, we're in the position where we know the killer's probable last name. We have his genealogy back to the 1600s. We have a cousin that we know is some kind of cousin, but we don't know who he is. Now, this is, you got to go back to 2011. I mean, this is weird. This is strange. So the police department said we can't arrest somebody because they weren't on the Mayflower. But this makes a great newspaper article. Would you be the point of contact? And I said, of course I would be. No problem. You know, let me know what else I can do to help. Kind of in the spirit of civic duty. Well. (laughs) And and the no good deed goes unpunished Uh, category? Yes. So it turns out that the fuller person in charge of that administrating that study, you know, I emailed her and I said, I couldn't tell you, you know, obviously it's police work. I'm not going to let you go on the internet on all the genealogists sharing the the information. I said, but I want to thank you for making that available. I want you to know what happened. And this is great. And nothing happened, got no answer. But of course, the media is advancing. You know, the, the police have their article in the Seattle Times because they thought maybe it'll attract attention, right? Maybe somebody will come forward with some kind of clue or tip. Well, later in the evening when the news hit, of course, this is flashing. Man, I was I was just flamed. I was beaten up. I was insulted. I was unsubscribed. I mean, this person carried that that hatred for me on that for years. I mean, I saw that. I saw comments and I saw it. And at one point, there was a, a story circulated that I had hired somebody by the, to say his name was Fuller, go to the police and insist or bully my way into having the police put that man's DNA in CODIS so that I could announce I solved the case. This is insane. I mean, wow. the police wouldn't cooperate with this and you'd have but, to be you know, crazy. Don't even, don't even don't even start. Right. <laughs> and and so. That's like the law enforcement equivalent of an anti-gravity machine or a perpetual motion machine. It doesn't, there's no way that can happen. And I, I saw comments fly by on the mailing list on, oh my God, Big Brother has my DNA, run for the hills. You know, oh my God, you, they're going to they're gonna interrogate all the fullers in the Pacific Northwest. Uh-huh. Subpoena oh, the DNA, the lab owners. I mean, and I'm saying, no, they're not. They just want to solve the case. You know, one guy commented, God, you don't know how many people have been falsely accused with DNA. And I'm like, and I'm trying to say, come on, guys, calm down, you know, whatever. And it just, I left the list. I was unsubscribed. I was bounced off of it. But I I didn't stop. You know, I I just said, I went sort of under the radar. And in truth, uh, the, the Phoenix Police Department, when I solved that case, Ask me not to go to the media. Ask me not to say anything because it was so new. They didn't know what to do about it either. Right. They didn't know how right. it would develop. So I was pretty quiet. And it took, you know, a journalist doing a FOIA request and getting the emails and, you know, all the backstory before she broke the story. Do you want to say so, who that was? Uh, the journalist? Uh, I'd have to look her up. She's uh-huh. now in the Bay Area, Michelle I can tell you later, when she finally broke the story, it was very well written. And I it was around Thanksgiving. I called her. I had to leave a message. And I said, you know, I, I'm really relieved, you know, that this all came out. The police department said I could talk to you, whatever. I'm just relieved because I really did want to talk to you. But I didn't know what to do either. They told me, you know, keep it quiet. And, and then did. I had the media. Yes, and I did. The news kind of got around the forensic community, which kind of rattled me a little bit because I didn't know what to do with those people either. You know, and I could have got got front and center stage waving flags and I'm sure the police departments, but I really had to honor their request. Right. You know, I, I work with the agency. I don't work to get out there on TV or the stage. That's good when it happens. I'm really glad to get recognized. But that's not why I did that. And I had to abide by their wishes because now it's a death penalty case. Mm-hmm. You know, that's very serious. And if I had, you know, come out and said something, how are they going to find a jury? What effect does that have on the on having a, a fair judicial process? Sure. 
Well, let me go back to something that you alluded to earlier. You used the term big brother. And so, of course, as the English teacher, I can't let that reference to 1984 go by without mentioning uh, without mentioning it. But you've brought up uh, something that I know has come up quite a lot in the last couple of years, which is privacy, privacy concerns. Big brother is going to be able to watch me. They're going to have my DNA. They're going to have all the information about me. They're going to do uh, terrible things and ruin my life. How do you respond to the concerns that people raise about privacy that comes along with forensic genealogy? You know, my statement is that's the world we live in. So get used. I tell people, if you are concerned about your privacy, you have nothing to be concerned about because we don't have any privacy. You know, you walk under those video cameras and all the the grocery stores and the and the the ATM picks you up on their camera, Walmart, Costco, wherever you go, you walk under 20 surveillance cameras a day. The traffic lights, you don't even see that. You don't even think about that. You use the internet. Yeah. You know, and you, a minute I log in just to look at the, any plane flights, I was interested. Are there any more planes operating? I looked at trips, right. you know, planes to New Orleans. Five minutes later, I get ads. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and, Offering uh, you specials right. to fly to New right. Orleans. And, you know, people say to me, oh, I don't have anything. You know, I'm not. Oh, really come convinced. on. And I am. I don't want people. Okay. I don't care if somebody knows I'm taking a plane to New Orleans, but I do care. You know, that's my business, not not the sure. Internet's business. Absolutely. You know, and when and even you see Cambridge Analytica, you know, leveraging their the whole Facebook phenomenon to try and influence elections. You, you can see that. They have tipped elections in the Caribbean several times in lots of countries by using social media. Well, we think they so, may have done that in the United States as well. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. You look at a, a program called The Big Hack, mm-hmm. and you can see. So not, we, not to mention the fact that, because I wanted to talk about this as well, all of us are carrying around powerful computers in our mm-hmm. pockets mm-hmm. with GPS built in. Mm-hmm. Kristen's holding up her cell phone mm-hmm. that literally track your every movement. And yeah. people seem to forget that when we all got excited about all this World Wide Web stuff way back when, and then we decided, oh, we got to get a smartphone. And I love this convenience and this technology, but it comes with tethers, which we right. don't even think about anymore. Right. It's privacy versus convenience and efficiency. Mm-hmm. Do I mean, you want your privacy or do you want convenient convenience and efficiency? Yeah. You know that and you can't even avoid I could send somebody, hire somebody to go and buy groceries for me because I don't want to be under any surveillance cameras ever. I don't want to go to a shopping mall. How can I live in the world like that? Well, you You can't, but people flip out. And my experience, and I have a lot less experience than you do, Colleen, but in the last two years since the Golden State Killer case broke, Mm -hmm. there's been a lot of discussion about the use of forensic genealogy. Some people now seem to be calling it investigative genetic genealogy, which is even more of a mouthful. But even in my limited experience, when I've jumped onto genealogy websites and forums and so on in an effort to learn, I'm very upfront about what my agenda is. I want to solve my sister Kathy's murder together with her girlfriend, Rebecca Dowski, as part of the Colonial Parkway murders. And Mm -hmm. I'm real upfront about that. And I try to treat everybody with respect and hear what they've got to say. But, oh, my gosh, even in my limited experience, people attacked me on these genealogy forums for daring to promote the idea that, you know, you understand that there are worthwhile things that are coming out of this kind of work. We have 200,000 cold case murders in the United States. And these tools could be used to help solve those cases. Heresy. I mean, people referred to GEDmatch as their database, like they owned something, which they didn't, and that they hadn't even established.
One of the most frequent questions we're asked here at Mind Over Murder is, how can I help? Thanks to Othram, a leading forensic DNA testing lab for law enforcement, you can get involved and help solve real cases. If you have tested at a consumer genetics company, you can contribute your data to dnasolves.com. The process is easy and confidential. Just two simple steps. Your DNA might be the missing piece that helps solve the identity of an unknown person. Then Mind Over Murder will highlight cases Othram is working on to seek your crowdfunding support for DNA testing to help solve these cold cases. Upload your DNA profile to dnasolves.com. It's easy, free, and confidential. Then join Mind Over Murder as we help families find answers with Othram and D. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. NASolves.com. Do you like our show, Mind Over Murder, and want to create your own podcast? Well, then, let us tell you about Anchor. First of all, it's free. And who doesn't love free, right? I like free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. You can even add any song from Spotify directly to your episodes. The possibilities are endless for what you can create, whether it's music analysis, your own radio show, or something the world's never heard before. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more platforms. And you can even make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. I like the sound of that. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. Right here, Anchor. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started on your own podcast. You can tell them Kristen and Bill from Mind Over Murder sent you. They murdered her. A vile and disgraceful act. We were able to discover the remains of two humans. Welcome to Crime Lapse. I am Eileen. And I'm Charlie. Crime Lapse is a true crime podcast that uses primary audio, in-depth research and emotive narration to give you an immersive insight into the darkest tales and most horrifying crimes. Find Crime Lapse wherever you listen to podcasts and at Crime Lapse Podcast or at Crime Lapse Pod on social media. Everyone has a story to tell, so why not let us tell you some? I mean, it went on and on and on. Some people Uh were just beyond the beyond nasty. And then people keep insisting that somehow there's, you know, people's people are going to be cloned without their authorization. I mean, (laughs) it's, you just get into insane self-involved navel gazing drivel. I mean, why would, you know, let's, let's go back to, to the definition of a rocket scientist. (laughs) Okay. The genealogy community is not a community of rocket scientists. You know, I want to, I do have to say, I'm really relating to what you're saying. I get it. And I even with your case, it's even more important because that's your family. That's your sister that you're concerned about. Go back to Sarah Yarborough. You know, it was like nonsense, emotionalism, ignorance. Let's say being uninformed is a better way of saying it. Not even wanting to be informed. No, they don't and, care. They don't even you know, care to be informed. Right. It's all emotions. A big community. It's unregulated. You can say anything you want. And you and I know I underwent a cyberbullying campaign a few years ago by a genealogist. And that's it. I mean, that's the community. And so fortunately, I have to say that the current atmosphere of using genetic genealogy for forensic wars has forced the community in some regard to some intelligent discussions. You know, there, it has brought out the more literate, concerned and well-read and interested people 
than it did before that understand issues. You know, these some of us have been invited to important discussions and meetings on what the meaning is. What do we do? What is privacy? What do you think? You know, so I see that as a good thing, as a good part of the evolution here, in spite of all the frou-frou there and the what you call navel gazers. I just was shocked at the level of vitriol and mm-hmm. nastiness dir- oh, yeah. directed at the families of murder victims yeah. and the, the, the just the, the dripping condescension directed mm-hmm. it at me. And I was trying to be respectful. And for the most part, I think I succeeded where I was just trying to explain you have to understand there's a significant societal benefit here, much in the same way searching for long lost relatives or helping people that have been adopted find their, uh, their birth parents and all the other sorts of mysteries and human concerns that can be addressed through genealogy. The response that I got from an, not a, not a, majority but a significant minority and boy were they vocal was that how dare i try to promote the idea that genealogy can also be used to solve america's 200,000 cold case murders and 2 to 400,000 untested rape kits and so that there was a there was a potential for a whole nother aspect of good to come from genealogical databases I, mm. I, I was basically treated by some people as some sort of heretic it was incredible and they wouldn't even acknowledge why i was seeking this information in other words very rarely would someone say and i'm not expecting people to you know cry in my beer about the fact that my sister's a murder victim but you might want to at least acknowledge that you know this has happened because i brought it up repeatedly and it was very rare for someone to say, you know, I'm sorry for your loss, or I understand, yeah. Bill, I understand Bill's concern, or I understand why the Thomas family and all of the eight families impacted by the Colonial Parkway murders would be interested in potentially identifying suspects through mm-hmm. the use of forensic genealogy. That was rare. Yeah. The fact that you've had to put up with what you've had to put up with for all these years, I only had two years worth of it. And by the end of yeah. it all, uh, I was just rolling my eyes. And yeah. I ended up being so turned off by the vocal minority in the genealogy community. I, I'm I'm still angry thinking about it now. Yeah, I, I would be because it's your sister. You know, and there's not even any, in your case, there's not any, like, compassion, like, I really, I understand where you're coming from, Bill. You know, it's your sister. I still think there's some privacy concerns here. There's not even any professionalism. There's not even any thought in many cases. It's just knee-jerk reaction. Big brother has my DNA. Oh, my God, I can't get it back. Well, you know, let's go back to the fact you post something on the Internet. It is no longer yours. So if you post it, don't worry about it later. If you Worry about it while you're sitting there with your finger on the enter key or submit key. That's your decision point. It's not later when somebody else either uses it in some way like, you know, used for the Golden State Killer, etc. Don't be upset. Even they hack it and they steal it. Be upset right when you decide you're going to post it on the Internet. You know, don't even be upset. Make an informed decision. And go with it, but you're going to have to live with that. Well, that if can... you want to use those tools, you're going to give up something for that. And if you don't want to use the tools, you can retain your privacy. Sure. And you can stay off this thing called the World Wide Web. As you said, the convenience that is made available to us. Yeah. it's going to be... Let me tell you, I have a, a story. I wind up giving, participating in seminars where I'm not the only speaker, that there are other topics covered. And there was a guy who was giving a talk on security, electronic surveillance. He was in the Army. That was his specialty. And he was getting ready to get out and do his own company. And it was a fascinating talk. And he 
right before I heard him, this was last year, there was a interview on NPR with the CEO of Ford Motor Company. And the CEO stated that Ford Motor Company made more money on the data the car collects about you in the car than the car itself. Interesting. And, and wow. he, gave, he gave the example. He flashed a whole, you know, he said that I think it was uh, BMW and one of the American cars, maybe it was Ford. When they download the data the car has collected over a period of time, it takes a whole day. I mean, it's massive. Ooh. And he, he flashed on the screen slides just a few pages of the data that winds up. And he stopped for a minute. He was making a comment. And it was, it happened the slide stopped on a page with just one line on the, you know, some kind of data, and it said Starbucks. So this car <laughs> had been in the Starbucks parking lot, and it had logged into the Starbucks server. It had pinged the wireless. Your sure. car pinged yeah. every wireless. Right. And it was known that that car was near that Starbucks at that time. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so he cited a case where there was a, a woman who was at a bar, and she claimed she talked to a guy at the bar, They went home to her place together, and she claimed he sexually assaulted her and beat her up. She called the police. He was gone. Call the police. Well, they go track the guy down. He's at home. He didn't have his cell phone that night, and he says, yes, I met her in the bar, but I didn't go to her house with her. We didn't even leave together. They went back to the surveillance camera in the bar, and they saw them talking, but they didn't cover the door of the bar, so they couldn't see whether they left together or not. However... The way they caught him was that the car registered that the passenger door and the driver door had opened at the same time. Wow. And that's how they confronted him with it. He confessed. That was how they solved the case. And I didn't even know a a car did that. (laughs) No, me either. Well, you do now. Yeah. Wow. Make sure that you both get in the same side of the car. (laughs) Well, and it's funny, we have seen any number of cases solved in recent years, including a number of prominent murders in Virginia that we both followed, where the GPS tracking of the cell phones and the and the cell phones as they move, pinging yeah. off the various towers and the triangulation that's capable as your cell phone, which is effectively a radio, sends yeah. out signals and receives signals from the various towers. You know, if you're a killer you better leave your cell phone at home because that is yeah. now a method by which you can be tracked. In fact, it's called geofencing. And there are companies that specialize in geofencing. And what you can do, this was another uh, seminar I talk I set in. What they do is when you go anywhere, your cell phone pings the wireless networks in the area. Now, normally in a urban environment, there's massive amounts of cell phones all around you. It's very hard to kind of decipher some of that. A company or an agency can, I don't know the word, subpoena records from Google or ask for a search warrant or something. I don't know the legal term. And if they provide a time frame and a geographical area, they will provide the, it's almost like a real-time map of all the phones and where they were flying around in this area at this time right. so that you, they can trace them. He gave the example of a, a, a case where a woman had sort of a farm, and she had several houses on the farm, and she opened like a place where brides could come and get married in one of the big houses, and the outlying houses were for the family of the bride, the family of the groom, and the wedding party. So this woman, the bride goes eight o'clock in the morning, the day of her wedding, and goes to the main house to make sure everything's set up. And she finds that the owner is murdered in the house. The owner's not there, but there's blood all over the houses in chaos. She calls the police. This is not a very urbanized area. So what they do is they subpoena the records from Google, the, the cell phones, and they wind up finding the owner of a cell phone that appeared on the porch of that house at one o'clock in the morning and they follow him and he's a construction guy. They trace him for like three days. They found out that the owner of the phone was a, a construction guy and he would get up in the morning. He'd go to his storage shed, look at his supplies, 
He'd go to Home Depot, pick up a few things, and then go do a job all day. Go home, he'd eat dinner, he'd watch TV, and he pretty much that was his routine. So on the night of the murder, he day of the murder, he did all that. But then after dinner, he went to go over to a friend's house. They probably watched a movie. And then he drove in the direction of the, this compound. And he stopped, actually stopped at a church parking lot for about 10 minutes. And then he proceeded to the woman's house and wound up on her porch. So that doesn't mean, you know, he killed her, but, mm, you know, he's a person of interest. They didn't tell him that, but they pulled him in for questioning. And they played up, you know, they said, you know, if you really did this, you know, you're a Christian. You know, you really need to come clean and confess and make things right. And over a period of time, he did. He confessed to the point he wanted to meet the family and apologize. So they said, that's probably not a good idea, but why don't you write a letter to him? and explain, you know, and tell how sorry you are. Of course, that's a written confession. And then her body wasn't there. And, you know, they said, well, to make it all right, you're going to have to show us where the body is. And he had driven some distance and dumped her in the... But that was geofencing. And of all of the phones, you know, it wasn't so crowded like where I am now. There's, you know, probably so many phones, it's not funny. You, You know, it'd be hard to deal with that. But in this area where it was crowded enough, but not too crowded, and she lived sort of on a big farm, so there was the cell phones of the wedding party, but there was he was the only one that wound up at the house at an unusual time, and he shouldn't have been there. He had painted the house two weeks earlier, so they kind of realized he had a connection to the victim for some reason. So. Right, right. So in a nutshell, we have more privacy concerns associated with our cell phone and all of its tracking technology than we should have with genetic genealogy or any any associated well, type of technology, it sounds like. You can say that DNA special. It's special, right? Because it's part of me. It's my but DNA to the world out there is data. It's just more different kind of data. Mm-hmm. So how are you going to protect DNA data from everything else? Put it aside and treat it as special. While I'm driving down the street, my cell phone pings everything in the, in the area. How are you going to corral DNA and make it sacred and so that nobody touches it, especially since you put it on the Internet, especially since you chose to give that DNA to a company, you chose to download it, you chose to put it on JEDmatch, and you expect it to be kept completely confidential. Yeah, this one always floored me, and I tried to make this argument in a respectful way. You put your DNA on an open-source database with over a million other people, so potentially millions of people could have looked at and used your DNA Mm -hmm. in an effort to find long-lost loved ones, etc. You put that out there voluntarily. Right. And now you're complaining because someone utilized your DNA, which you put out there voluntarily. And it isn't like they're doing something nefarious with this. They are helping to solve cold case murders and sexual assaults. Some of the most heinous crimes ever, many of which have gone decades without being solved. So why is it okay for someone to find long-lost relatives using your DNA that you put out there voluntarily, and it's Mm -hmm. not okay for someone else to find out who killed or raped their relatives? Let's go back to the definition of rocket scientist. This is one of your favorites. We can tell. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it just... Let's say this, it's come up twice in this discussion. You know, it probably hasn't come up in a couple of years, but it so happens. It's appropriate. I'm saying that we it's not supposed to make sense. Don't try and make it make sense. This is emotionalism. When I did the, you know, back to the Fuller situation, that data was publicly accessible. I didn't crack into uh, the Fuller DNA study. Yeah, they put it it out there. Yeah, it was right there in front of me, and I could even visually see that it all matches, you know, in this corner of the Fuller study. You know, the owner of that study suddenly, you know, made it private. You had to contact her to get access to that data. What What do you expect, that she's going to put an electronic gate around her data, public data, 
displayed on the internet with a little disclaimer. If you're law enforcement, please click away from my website. Well, then don't you put know? it out there on the World right, Wide Web. Right, right. And police use Facebook. Police use Instagram. We, I saw that. I've been sitting in, remember, all these seminars. Sure, that I see. absolutely. So you want to take away Facebook because the police are using it? I tell the police, no, 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 don't go on Facebook. But they do. <laughs> you, know, I, you know, we both know from cases that we've worked on, they, yeah. that's one of the first places they go is, does yeah. someone have a social media platform? Yes, right. Are they, are they on Facebook, Twitter, you, you know, you name it? And yeah. what's, what does their Instagram profile look like? And yeah. all of us put up more information, and Kristen and I are as guilty of this as anybody. Oh, yeah, for sure. We put up a ton of information about ourselves. We're, there's no such thing as privacy. There no. hasn't been anything called privacy for decades. Right. If you're worried about your privacy, you have nothing to worry about. You can go live in the woods like Ted Kaczynski and mm-hmm. and try to you know live off the grid. And then maybe, right. maybe you'll have some privacy there. Right. And going back to my original statement, you know, uh, this is the world we live in. So, you know, why are you worrying about it now? We're way downstream now with the internet and the convenience and the emails and the Facebook, Instagram, even GEDmatch. Why are you concerned now? You know, why now? You know, sure, you know, the DNA has come up to the forefront, but the DNA is only like the, I'd say, the one of the more obvious hooks into this argument. You know, this, this world we live in, this life we lead. Well, and my response is, self-involvement and arrogance in the extreme because that mm-hmm. was the kind of reaction I got. How dare you? I do want to switch yeah. gears for a second here. We've only got a couple of minutes left and mm-hmm. we failed to ask you about the DNA Dope Project, which is another mm-hmm. really worthwhile endeavor. Tell us about the DNA Pro- Dope Project, please. That project was formed with Margaret Press and I in early 2017 Margaret approached me saying, why can't we use autosomal SNP testing to identify John and Jane Doe's? At first, I had the knee jerk, well, ancestry won't work with forensic cases. But after considering it, I said, well, wait, maybe there is a way to do this. And, you know, we eventually worked out a way through an independent lab. Everybody knows that now. We couldn't go to Ancestry to get Ancestry data done. So we got DNA sent to an independent lab saying, you know, we know what Ancestry 23 me. We know that what the data looks like because we downloaded our own data. We own it. So could you take DNA and convert it or process it so that you can get data to look like Ancestry data? And, of course, that's, that's doable. That, that technology is full, readily available. And so we managed to do a couple of cases. The, the real challenge, first, working out how to get those GEDmatch kits done independently also, you had to understand this. We were a different environment then. We had to go to law enforcement agencies that had no idea what we were talking about. You know, here's two little old ladies approaching an agency and she's saying, we can solve your 30-year-old case. Just give us your DNA and we're going to do like ancestry and find the relatives and okay, whatever. We have no idea what you're talking about, but it sounds good. <laughs> well, you know, um, one of the little old ladies was a rocket scientist, though, to be fair. Oh, yes, correct, <laughs> to be fair. And I had been through that, the why DNA. You know, the people that didn't know what I was talking about but took a risk because they really wanted to solve their case and they were at a dead end. One of those was Pete Elliott, the U.S. Marshal from Northern Ohio, fabulous guy. And I had worked in, with him on the Y-DNA on the Joseph Newton Chandler case. So that became our first case. And he trusted us with there was almost no DNA left in the entire world for that Mr. X. He was It was a fraud case. And he trusted us with that. And for months, all we said, we could say is, yeah, Pete, we're doing it. We're going to get him. Don't worry. We're working hard. And if we even said, hey, we just found a pair of third cousins, he would have absolute blank. Okay, I'm really glad he didn't get it. So we also went to the Meriden Police Department because I had been working on them on the David Paul case. It was a baby case. And I knew that Margaret and I put our funds together to finance these pilot studies. So we knew they would be more than happy to risk something. 
eventually we realized baby cases were not, you know, might lead to criminal charges. We wanted to shy away from that with DNA dough. We wanted to position that as a more humanitarian effort, getting back to the reaction of the genetic genealogy community. So I wound up doing that one under identifinders. We solved it last year. Going back, Margaret and I, you know, had several challenges we had to meet. And as we developed it, we had to be very careful about who knew what we were doing and why we were doing it. And occasionally, you know, we'd have to ask if it was a distant cousin. We never asked immediate relatives on any of the Jed Match kits. If it was very distant, we'd say, you know, we're trying to reunite somebody with their family. Would you mind sharing your ancestry with us, your Jed Match kit, you know, your family tree with us? And we were very careful. And so people were okay with that. And then as this kind of got more and more known, we were asking and they were going, they started answering Oh, you must be from the DNA Doe Project. How do I volunteer? Ah, your fame preceded you. (laughs) Yeah. So we kind of turned the corner with that attitude because we did not do suspect cases, criminal cases. We were doing John and Jane Doe cases. And when we started solving them, you know, that it gained momentum. And of course, when Barbara did the Golden State Killer, I mean, that's the one that really hit the news. And of course, that helped us. You know, we all advanced at that point. And that's, you know, the beginning of where we are now. You know, the real splash and the real, you know, all the discussions about concerns with privacy and, you know, where are we going with this? And that really triggered that discussion, the beginning of the revolution. We were there beginning the revolution, but it got known through the Golden State Killer and Barbara's work. Well, it's amazing. The, all the work that you've done is really only in the last decade. And then it's yeah. only the last two years since the Golden State Killer case pushed this kind of discussion, if you will, to the forefront. But it, yeah. it's actually been a good thing, in your opinion. Yeah, well, I asked Barbara, I said, Barbara, you know, when you did the Golden State Killer, you know, were you, how did you feel? Were you afraid you'd be attacked or something? And she said, yeah, I was afraid gangs or something would come after me. I'm, I said, no, 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 I'm not interested in the in the gangs and stuff like that. I'm interested in the genealogists attacking me. <laughs> those violent, violent <laughs> yeah, those genealogists. Things. Yeah, I mean, I laughed. I said, you know, I've never really been concerned with personal safety. I mean, should I be thinking it's it's too late now? You know, but that being said, you know, I, I was more concerned with, you know, the ongoing you know, genealogy attitude, you know, oh my God, big brother has my DNA, you wicked person. How could you do this? You right, betray you. Right. Whereas I didn't betray you. When I met with Barbara Rayventer a few years ago in Northern California, she actually told me one of the reasons why she had maintained the low profile was when this was so new, she actually was concerned she didn't want to really be identified as the person, a single woman, no less, who helps catch serial killers. Yeah. That that initially was a kind of a frightening concept. And I think it's Paul Holes, who was, you know, on the team that helped break the GSK case, eventually convinced her to come forward and accept credit for the good work that she and the team of volunteers had done. Right. And doing that really kind of, I think, helped. It helped the whole community. I think, it, you know, it was good that she did that. It's not good to live in fear and you have to protect yourself. But I think doing that, that was really gutsy. And uh, she got the credit. She does deserve the credit for what she did. And it helped. You know, it helped with all these issues we're discussing with the privacy and the attitude. And even though, let's say it's uncomfortable, we, we have a long way from resolving it. It helped. So will you come back and talk with us again? We've, believe yeah, it or sure, not, we've time. actually run out of time. <laughs> no, I'm just getting started. Well, know? with your permission, we'd love to have you back. Absolutely. Yeah, sure, of course. Anytime. And, you know, I've never really been asked some of these questions, so I appreciate them. You know, I've thought a lot about it, and I, just, I never really have shared a lot of those thoughts. So I would more than welcome, you know, being on the show again. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll look forward to having you on again. Yes, thank you guys so much. (laughs) 
Mind Over Murder is a production of Absolute Zero and Another Dog Productions. Our executive producers are Bill Thomas and Kristen Dilley. Our logo art is by Pamela Arnois. Our theme music is by Kevin McLeod. Mind Over Murder is distributed in partnership with Crawl Space Media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also follow our page on the Colonial Parkway Murders on Facebook. And finally, you can follow Bill Thomas on Twitter at BillThomas56. Thank you for listening to Mind Over Murder.